Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 22, starting in verse 47. And when you've turned there, please stand for the reading of God's word. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who has come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, no doubt you already know some of the main themes that have uh, been coming up, and you even recognize them as we read these scriptures week after week, how these themes echo and they repeat themselves. Um, and we'll touch on a number of those themes we've touched on earlier in the Gospel of Luke tonight. Um, because Luke, uh, like all the Gospels, are written to teach us not just things that happened historically, but things that we are to believe in light of historical events. And so uh, it is with that kind of eye that we turn to our text tonight. And the text tonight is all about the kind of comfort that results from understanding the providence of God. You recognize this in Jesus, how he is certainly at peace with what is unfolding in front of him. Uh, You will recognize the lack of this with the disciples in terms of what's folding in front of them. And providence... uh, is something that Luke has been teaching us throughout the time that he has been writing the gospel. And we'll see those themes crop up as we we go. Um, But providence is a a big theological term, but essentially what it means is that God is in control and in charge of every detail and aspect of human history as it unfolds. Uh, Providence is what Christians talk about when we want to talk about that When something happens in history that seems obscure and removed and random, that we actually as Christians believe that that is not the case. That God is actually involved with and over every detail of our lives. That brings a lot of problems to us as Christians. certainly does. And hopefully we'll talk and resolve some of those in our time together tonight. But if you want to have a simple way to understand what providence is like, Uh, Providence is like when you uh, are trying to understand, uh, uh, let's say if you've ever played a game like chess for the first time. I don't know if any of you have played chess. Um, If you've never played chess, you can think about checkers during this time. But when I was growing up, I would play chess with my dad. He was the one who taught me how to play chess. And I can't remember when when I first started, but... I, I didn't even really know the name of the pieces. I just knew kind of how they moved because that's, you know, he would just sit down, he would show me how they moved, and I would play with him at night, maybe like a couple times a week. And uh, I remember this time when I was 12, I think 13 years old, I, had, I was getting better at chess, and I was getting better to the point where there were a couple of times where I thought, maybe, just maybe, I might beat my dad today. 
So I was looking forward to it. I was, I was, really, I was really excited for that moment. And I remember one time uh, when I was 13 years old, I finally had that game where I was playing and my dad made a mistake, what in chess is called a blunder, where you make a move that you're not supposed to make and you're supposed to know to not have made that move. And then you, and I took advantage of it. I didn't let him take the move back. I was like, this is my, my moment. And I went on to win that game. Uh, what providence is like when you're trying to understand providence, the providence of God, it would be like uh, when, you, when you are brand new to a game like chess and you're playing with someone who's an expert at that game. And no matter what you're doing to move the pieces, at some point you recognize you are not in control of what's happening. Uh, you're playing the game. You are volitionally acting and reacting to things as they're unfolding. But there's, there's another player in the game who's bigger and stronger and more powerful than you are, who can see deeper into the game than you can, who can, re who can anticipate more than you can, and who is over this game in a way that you cannot be. And uh, that's a little bit what providence is like in, in human life. It's like playing chess with a grandmaster or someone who's way better than you when you're first starting out. Because providence does not mean that as Christians we are robots. We, we simply do whatever God has fated us to do and therefore life is meaningless and we just kind of exist into the void. Providence is, it affirms the fact that humans make meaningful choices on a normal basis throughout our lives. Every choice we make is meaningful and we can even say moral. What that means is your, your choices have moral value to them. Whether you do something that's loving or you do something that's unloving, that's a moral kind of choice. Whether you serve someone or choose to not serve someone, whether you choose to lie or to tell the truth, these are moral choices that humans make. And moral choices mean we can be held responsible for the results of those choices. And Christianity affirms all of those things because it all fits within God's providence. Humans make meaningful choices, and in all of the choices that we make, all of our meaningful choices, God is operating at a sovereign level over all of it in such a way that his purposes come about. He's not coercing people. He's not robotically uh, uh, taking people and making them do things that they don't want to be doing. Uh, he is over our choices in such a way that his will comes about. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I have no idea what that has to do with anything that we just read in the, these couple of verses, verse 47 through verse 53. Um, if you don't get providence, you won't understand why Jesus is so calm going through his betrayal and his subsequent trial and subsequent crucifixion. You, don't, you just won't understand it. And if you do get providence, Jesus' actions become more reasonable. They become more understandable, and, and therefore they, they become a model for us of how do we go through life in light of the providence of God. So let's look at the verse, uh, verse 47, uh, where we see the events as they begin to unfold. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd. And a man called Judas, who, by the way, if you forgot, is one of the twelve, who was leading them. Now, in Luke chapter 22 earlier, uh, really the first couple verses, we see that Judas has uh, col collaborated with Satan and the Pharisees to betray Jesus. Uh, Satan, who is behind the deception of Judas, and then Judas, who betrays Jesus to the Pharisees. And here comes the moment where the betrayal happens in real time. And look at the response of Jesus. Uh, 
uh, so he, Judas, drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And that question should not be taken as Jesus being confused as to what's going on. Because if you just look a couple of verses earlier, uh, where Jesus in verse 21 of Luke 22 says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knew that this was going to happen. So when Jesus asked the question, he's not asking it because he's confused or he needs clarity. He's asking it because he's bringing to light what is happening. He is, he's making it obvious. He's naming it, if you will. He's, he's just vocalizing what is happening. And what's interesting is he calls himself the Son of Man. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now that designation of Jesus being the Son of Man is helpful for understanding why Jesus responds the way he does. And Luke has helped us to see this in his gospel several times all throughout. And that is that Jesus has regularly, kind of periodically throughout the gospel, in case you forget, he kind of renames it a bunch of times, has mentioned the fact that he, the Son of Man, will be betrayed and crucified. Now, you don't need to go too far back to find this. In fact, if you just go to chapter 18 of Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 18, verse 31, you will see uh, this exact language used of Jesus. And in this case, he refers to the Son of Man almost as though it's a distant figure. But as you see, just what he said, Judas, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. He's referring to himself, obviously. But in Luke 18, verse 31, and he, talking to the twelve, said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What are those things? For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and will be shamefully treated, and will be spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And remember, the disciples at the time don't have a clue what is going on, what Jesus is referring to. It's because they, it's so hard for them to fathom how these events are to unfold. Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament rightly, but at the time that he's saying these things, this is not how the Old Testament is being interpreted. The Old Testament is being interpreted as though the Messiah to come is coming in a conquering military fashion. So for him to say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of Man, and I come to die, is a rather strange thing for him to be saying. So they have a hard time grasping it. And here Jesus says of himself, Judas, you betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. Right? Now, he's, now he himself is saying, I, the Son of Man, am being betrayed. And this should bring your mind as a reader of Luke's Gospel back to Luke chapter 18 and the other places in Luke's Gospel where he has referenced and predicted his own death, where Jesus has, and where he refers to himself as the Son of Man in each of these references. So Luke has already primed us to understand theologically what's happening. He's told us it is necessary that these things take place for the Son of Man to be betrayed. So Jesus' question is confirming or naming what is unfolding as it's happening. It's not his confusion that is, that is leading to this. It is his clarity on what's happening and naming it aloud. Now, the difference between Jesus and the disciples' response to these events is a difference of prayer. So if you look at the disciples' response, verse uh, 49, they just look at the dialogue, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? <laughs> uh, the disciples think now is the time to fight and to overthrow and to prevent Jesus from being betrayed. 
But Jesus has told them he will be betrayed. That's, what's, that's how it's unfolding. And what's the difference? Well, the difference is if you look at verse 39 through 46, the verses we covered last week, you'll remember Jesus says to the disciples, pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Then he goes to pray, and in his prayer he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if not, not my will, but your will be done. That leads him to further agony, further suffering, because the cup is coming nearer and closer to his experience, because he is submitting himself to the suffering. And then he rises from prayer, verse 45, goes to his disciples and finds them asleep. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The difference between how Jesus and the disciples respond at the betrayal is a difference of prayer. We might observe that the fruit of prayer is a kind of readiness. The fruit of prayer is that Jesus is prepared to submit to God's providence and the disciples are unprepared to submit to God's providence. Providence is happening either way, but what prayer has done is it has made closer the distance between the will of Jesus and the will of the Father. It has, it has unified those in, in a way. And what prayer ought to have done for the disciples is that very same kind of thing, to unify their will closer to the will of God. This is the kind of thing that prayer does. Often we might wonder, what, what is the purpose of prayer? Is the purpose of prayer for us to change the mind of God, to act as his personal advisors, to give him insight and key information that might help him to know how to dictate and govern the world? Is that the purpose of prayer? If so, then prayer is inherently meaningful because if I don't pray, then God might not know. You might not think that I'm, I'm being uh, uh, a little bit uh, extreme. But what prayer actually primarily does, it doesn't change God's mind. What prayer primarily does is it lines up our hearts and wills in line with God's will. Or as I've said it before, as we see in the Lord's Prayer, what I told you at the time is, should be better called the Disciples' Prayer because it's for the disciples. Uh, they're praying for things that God has already told them are going to unfold. Pray for the kingdom of God to come. Pray for him to give you daily provision. Pray for him to forgive you of your sins. These kinds of things God has already promised to his people. And so we pray for them because God has promised them to us. So what does prayer do in that, in that case? Prayer brings our wills closer to and in line with and in submission to the will of God in a way that not praying would not have prepared us for. What prayer does primarily is it gets our soul to rightly view the world's events in light of the throne room of God. What prayer primarily does, it gets our hearts and souls to look rightly at the world and see it rightly in light of what God has accomplished. This is in line with uh, Jeremiah. Uh, this is in line with uh, David. This is in line with Daniel as he prays. In, in all of these instances, the prayers of these saints are not seeking to change the mind of God or to coerce the mind of God into things that he does not want to do, but rather to help them to understand reality in light of God's sovereign activity in the world. God was planning to save Sodom and Gomorrah either way, or he was planning to save Lot either way, Abraham's intervention simply is the means by which that providence happens. Similarly, when Daniel prays for God to bring clarity to him and forgiveness uh, to the Israelite people for their sins in Daniel chapter 9, God is not being coerced against his will to try to forgive Israel. 
God is the one who's giving Daniel the visions that show how Israel is to be redeemed. And he's helping Daniel to understand those visions as well. So what prayer is not doing is changing God's mind. What prayer is doing is it's changing your mind and your heart to line up better with the will of God. I would say that one of the things that prayer does for us Christians is it connects our head and our heart. It takes the doctrine that we know to be true up here and that we struggle to live out out there and it connects them closer. A prayer is a powerful tool for us to submit our own will to the will of what we know we ought to do. So God tells us we ought to obey and the mistake we can make is we think, therefore, I must willpower obey God. Actually, God says obey, and then he says pray. And what prayer does is it helps us to love the obedience which we render to God. It helps us to want the things which he commands us to do. Prayer connects our heads and our hearts. Prayer is the thing that helps us to take obscure doctrines like the providence of God and experience them in a daily reality in a way that is actually meaningful. So that uh, the coworker who's mean to you at work is not some suffering that you're enduring just because you live in a world, but it's actually a means by which God is sanctifying you maybe, a means by which God is giving you an opportunity to be merciful and kind and loving. It, it is seen in light of God's providence in a different way when you pray. Prayer helps us to see things rightly. It helps us to experience the world in a more true way in line with the throne of God. This is even true for instance, in the book of Revelation, uh, what, what happens to John in his visions in the Revelation is he's praying in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and he sees reality as it is, the Lamb enthroned, not Caesar. He sees God victorious, not Rome or any other empire. He sees reality as it actually is in his visions. Prayer does a very similar kind of thing to us as Christians. It helps us to see reality as it actually is. And it helps us not by willpower and discipline, but by prayer to obey God's commands. I wonder if you consider the kinds of sins you struggle with on a regular basis, and you think about how uh, often our solutions to those sin problems in our life is we think, I need uh, better habits, I need maybe to get up earlier, I need more discipline, I need more resolve, I need more uh, whatever it may be to, to motivate me and to juice me up to obey or to be a holier Christian, or whatever it may be. And often we don't think about prayer as a tool in our toolkit to help us love and obey God from a joyful kind of posture. Consider the command that Jesus has to obey, uh, to pray uh, to his disciples. He tells them twice to pray not to enter into temptation, because prayer would really have helped them in the, in the hour of the betrayal to see the betrayal rightly, in a way that prayer does help Jesus to see the betrayal rightly. Jesus, who is praying, even though he knows what's going to unfold, why does he pray? He prays to more accurately be in line with the will of the Father. What prayer does for Jesus is it, right, it lines his will, his human will, up with the will of the divine Godhead. And it would have helped the disciples to do the same kind of thing. That's the fruit of prayer, is that it, it prepares us for enduring suffering, pain, whatever it may be in life. Jesus is prepared in a way the disciples are not prepared. That, is, that much is very clear from the betrayal account. So we see prayer then as a tool for understanding and seeing the providence of God. Prayer helps us to do that.
And now we see also what happens when we rightly understand the providence of God. It becomes a comfort to us as it was a comfort to Jesus. So consider, uh, for instance, if you allow me to skip over a couple verses, I'll, I'll return back to them. But go to verse 52 of the text. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and to the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber as with swords and with clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But what does he conclude? This is your hour and the power of darkness. He knows what's happening. He's not in denial about what's going on. He knows what's happening. And yet he's able to rightly submit himself to the events as they unfold. Because through prayer, he's able to get a grip and a right understanding of providence. He's able to see and read the events rightly as they're unfolding. So then the doctrine of God's providence is a tool for us to have comfort in terms of experiencing life, not, not a tool for us to debate about. Um, Often, when, when uh, you think about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, as it's often otherwise termed, um, you, you think about uh, the debates around like Calvinism, Arminianism, and things like that. Um, in fact, uh, if, you've, if you've ever met a Christian who's newly inducted into understanding something like the providence or the sovereignty of God, uh, it has this kind of like all roads lead to Rome effect, where um, no matter what ta- you're talking about or experiencing or what text of scripture you're in, all roads lead back to the sovereignty of God in some way, shape, or form. And it's not wrong to see Scripture in terms of the sovereignty of God, but the sovereignty of God, the providence of God in Scripture, is most clearly emphasized in the text where it is a comfort to the people of God. So if you consider, for example, in the Old Testament, the providence of God from the text of Genesis, where Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, thrown in prison, he's freed from prison, he's thrown back in prison, He's suffering that whole time being abandoned. And yet, his understanding of the providence of God gets him through. So such at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, Joseph can say, what you were intending for evil, God was intending for good. So what is providence for Joseph? It's not something he's, he's having a debate about with his brothers. It's something he's saying, this was a comfort to me in my imprisonment, that God was in control of this whole thing, even while evil was being sought out against me. This is the exact kind of thing that happens with Daniel when he submits himself to be thrown into the lion's den. Uh, Those wise men who wanted to get rid of Daniel, seeking and scheming against Daniel, what what does Daniel do? He submits himself to the providence of God and simply entrusts himself to things as they unfold. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they do the same thing just a couple chapters earlier in the fiery furnace account. The providence of God is a comfort to the people of God as they experience suffering and life in this world. And that's because it's supposed to do that. It's supposed to be a comfort to us. In fact, the doctrine of God's providence, what, what you see here, Jesus walking out in the text, is, is something that is intended for us, uh, primarily in the moments where we most are tempted to think this world is chaotic, this world is broken, what hope is there in this world? And in comes the doctrine of God's providence to say, Actually, God's in control of this too and is working it out for your good, whether you see it or know it or not. 
Now, the reason I, I say this, is, this text is all about the providence of God is because we can, we can ask rightly the question, who is in charge of this betrayal as it's unfolding? Who is in charge of the betrayal as it's going about? On the one hand, you have Judas, who is the betrayer, who is volitionally betraying Christ for some amount of money. He's certainly an agent who's working out the betrayal. You could say it is the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the temple guard of the Jewish temple who, who are the agents to help with the betrayal process to make sure the betrayal happens. Certainly they could be in some sense uh, helping or assisting in the betrayal. Maybe they're in charge of it as it unfolds. As you're going to see later in the text, uh, you're going to see uh, Jesus going on trial. We can ask the same kind of question. Who's in charge of these events as they unfold? Is it Pilate who's responsible? Is it Herod who's responsible? Is it the high priest who's responsible? Who's, who's in charge of this thing? And it's very easy. Imagine you're a disciple and you're watching these things unfold. It's very easy to conclude Jesus has lost control. He's about to be killed. What are we going to do? And yet, as a reader of Luke's gospel, because Luke has primed you to understand the providence of God as it works, I think it's a lot easier as a reader to see these things and go, oh, I see how God is in control, even while it looks like complete and utter chaos on the ground. Judas has betrayed Jesus. He's betrayed him to the very people who want Jesus to die. Uh, Surely Jesus is not, and Jesus isn't even fighting back. Why isn't Jesus fighting back? Well, Jesus is not fighting back because this is what he too wants to have happen. Uh, if, you, if you've uh, a fan of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, um, this scene is wonderfully depicted by C.S. Lewis when he describes Aslan willingly giving himself over to the White Witch and to her minions in place of Edmund. So Edmund uh, is, is the traitor of his, his family. He's the one who's betrayed them. And Aslan rescues Edmund and then goes and says to the White Witch, I will be his substitute. Well, what, the White Witch says, well, what, how am I going to kill you as his substitute? Basically saying, I'm not strong enough to do this. And Aslan willingly allows himself to be bound, tied, shaved, mocked, and ultimately killed. And as, as the movie depicts it, uh, the, the, the creatures that are around Aslan trying to kill him, or, or in this case, humiliate him before they kill him, are still scared of Aslan. When he turns to them, even with the ropes around his face, they still flee from him because they know, they know that he's more powerful than they are. And if you're a watcher of that movie, you would not conclude Aslan's not in charge of what's going on. Aslan is in complete control of these things as they unfold. And, he, and they're happening as he wants them to happen because they're according to his purpose. But if you're the children, you're thinking, Aslan's dead, what are we going to do? What are we going to do now that Aslan's dead, right? But Aslan's in control the whole time. Jesus is in control of this betrayal the whole entire time. And that gives comfort, or it should have given comfort to the disciples. Remember, he's warned them about this a couple of times. And it certainly gives a a kind of poise and carefulness to Jesus as he engages with the uh, scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, Notice the people who come against him. This is in verse 52. He's speaking to the chief priests, to the officers of the temple, and to the elders of the people. So, Basically, all of the officials that could be official in Judaism have come out against Jesus to, be, to get him in the betrayal. And he speaks to all of them and basically says, yeah, I know this is going to happen. This is your hour, the hour of darkness. 
And what's implied there is, is your hour now, and hint, hint, as Luke will tell us later, their hour does not last forever. Jesus is totally comfortable with these events as they're unfolding. That's because he's leaning here on the providence of God as it plays out. The point is, while Judas is seeking to betray Jesus and thinking he is doing something that might be against what Jesus wants, certainly it's against what the other 11 disciples want, Judas is actually doing the exact thing that God would have him do in in providence. There's another uh, example of this. This uh, comes from uh, Lord of the Rings, which is my favorite fantasy series of all time, where in the third book, uh, people are commenting, uh, they're talking with Gandalf about how Gollum has linked up with Frodo and Sam on their trip into Mordor. And they're wondering, will Frodo and Sam be able to complete the mission now that Gollum is with them? Perhaps that's bad news because they've just found it out. And Gandalf says something striking about providence. He says, let us remember that a traitor may betray himself and do good that he does not intend to do. What what he's commenting about is that Gollum might, with all his will and might, try to betray the fellowship. And yet, there's this providence surrounding the Lord of the Rings universe in which Gandalf and Faramir and others entrust themselves to the outworking of. And they basically say, perhaps he might try to betray them, but perhaps he does something that he does not intend to do. And here we see Judas certainly is betraying Jesus and also doing something he does not intend to do. Priming Jesus in the exact position where Jesus can atone for the sins of the world. It's quite striking. Judas seeking to thwart the mission of Jesus on earth and and being the very tool by which that mission is accomplished. As I said with Joseph and the example there, his brothers betray him thinking we're getting rid of Joseph, not knowing that they need Joseph to survive the famine, which is coming generations, a generation later for them. And Joseph being the tool which causes Israel to survive that very famine, them doing something against their own will, betraying someone who will ultimately accomplish the very purpose of God in that one's life. As one uh, preacher puts it, uh, this Dale Ralph Davis, he says, oh, he will be arrested all right, speaking of Jesus, but here in the garden, he is in control. So he's being arrested, he's being given over to these temple guards, but make no mistake about it, Jesus is the one who's in control of the events as they unfold. The misunderstanding of this comes from the disciples trying to uh, fight back with the swords that they would have had acquired uh, earlier when Jesus is speaking to them about um, getting ready and preparing for after the crucifixion. In verse 38 of Luke 22, uh, remember they say to him, look, Lord, we have here two swords. And he says to them, okay, fine. And then here they have those two swords. And in verse uh, 49, they say, Uh, And when those who were around him, the disciples, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, uh, it's Peter, he's the one, uh, I think John is the gospel that exposes him. All the other gospels say one of them struck with the sword, and John's like, it was Peter. Peter did it. Um, One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus says, no more of this. So Jesus is saying, don't intervene. This is what is supposed to happen. And he touched the ear and healed him. So he heals the very person who's here arresting and betraying him. It's striking. One of the things that we have to observe is the thing that the, remember the the elders are trying to do is they're trying to accuse Jesus of being a a military rebel against Rome. That's going to be their 
there's going to be their uh, prosecution in the trial that they're about to unfold. And so Jesus saying to the disciples, don't fight back with swords, in part is wise because if they do fight back with swords, there's example A of what the chief priests are accusing him of, right? So when, when Peter does this, Peter in some sense puts in jeopardy the innocence, not truly the innocence, but in, in the, the visual world, the innocence of Jesus for being a, a rebel. Peter, Peter threatens that. What Jesus does immediately in response is heal the person who Peter's just struck and says, no. So he, as the leader of these people, says, do not fight. He heals the person who's been injured. And in doing so, he's going to make the rest of their trial really hard to put together because it's hard to accuse someone of being the inciter of rebellion when they're the only one in their group who said, don't fight, and then they healed the one who was attacked. So Jesus is clearing himself on all charges in these actions. And he's doing what God's hand has predestined to take place. Several times, as I said already in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be betrayed, he will be killed, he will be mocked and beaten, and be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles. This is not news to Jesus. And, and yet it is difficult now because here is the heightened moment where it's being walked out. And this brings to us a question. Uh, obviously, in this case, it's easy for us to see, okay, Jesus entrusting himself to the providence of uh, God uh, here. Certainly, he's walking this out. Uh, certainly, the disciples are not picking up on that. You're going to see they scatter during the night. Peter will, uh, as we'll talk about next week, denies Jesus. Uh, they're in total disarray because they're failing to see it as part of the plan of God. They think the jig is up. This is not going well. And we can very naturally ask ourselves a question. Um, how are we to understand the providence of God in real time as it's unfolding? You know, it's easier to look back and see, oh, I see how the providence of God is working out over there. It's a lot easier also for us to conclude false things about the providence of God. One false thing would be to say God is not in control of X situation because I can't reconcile how it would fit into God's wisdom and plan. You can see the disciples as the chief example of this where they think Jesus may not be in control of this betrayal right now. We should fight. Uh, so they conclude falsely God's not in control because of the fact that it's happening against their will or seemingly against the will of God, contrary to his plans. Uh, but we, you can play that out today in your own life. Uh, let's say you experience, well, those, there's many of you who work in the healthcare field who might know patients who are suffering immensely from sickness and from the effects bodily of the curse of sin in this world. You see that on a regular basis. Some of you work uh, as teachers or with children who are in very broken situations, home lives, whatever, uh, whatever situation they may be in. And you can think to yourself, man, I, I just cannot see how God could be on the hook for this. How is he working out good when this, man, when this situation is manifestly bad all the way around? The wrong conclusion to, to, to think would be to say, because I can't draw the dots about how God's providence is at work, I must conclude that God is not providentially in control in this situation. That, that would be like, um, if, uh, if you were a, a teacher, you might have had this experience. I certainly did. I was showing my students how to do density equations one day in the classroom, uh, which is you just, you know, density is mass divided by volume. Very simple three variable equation. And I remember I had given like the second example problem and I finished it and I was going to show a third problem. And one of the students said to me, 
I am not understanding what's going on. I don't think you're doing this right. <laughs> and I remember saying to them like, okay, well, show me how you're doing it. And because they couldn't understand how I was getting to the concluding answer, they were concluding, this person has no idea what's going on. And we, you think that's funny, but we often do that same kind of thing about God. We think because we cannot put together the pieces about how this event is playing into providence, therefore, God doesn't know what he's doing. He must not be in control. We can do that kind of thing with God. And I'm not saying, by the way, that you're going to leave today with an answer that you can go to your patient tomorrow with or your student tomorrow with and go, don't worry, God's working out for this purpose in your life. Because suffering can do a number of things that, that are according to God's plan. Pain and evil in this world can do a number of things according to the will of God. It is not our job as Christians to cross the T's and dot the I's on everything in real time. That's actually where faith comes in. What faith says is, even if I cannot see clearly right now how this thing is working itself out for the good of this person or for the good of God's glory or whatever it may be, even if I can't put it all together, I trust, based on the historical reliability of God's actions in history, that it is working itself out in just that very way. So whereas the disciples might be on the hook for betraying Jesus and, and fleeing at the betrayal, if we look at God's providence unfolding in life and we think, I can't see how it's working out, therefore, there's no providence, that is a wrong conclusion and we have more data to support God working himself out in history faithfully, even in the face of all kinds of wicked and w weird situations. I mean, if you've ever read your Old Testament, you know there's all kinds of these weird situations where God is at work to heal Israel, to sanctify Israel, to save Israel. At one point in time in Isaiah, God uses Cyrus, a wicked pagan king, who he says, Cyrus is my servant to help redeem my people. And you might think, well, how does God want to be on the hook for Cyrus's reign? But God's not saying, I morally condone everything Cyrus does. He's saying, Cyrus is a tool of mine to save my people. Jesus here is not, what we're not saying is because Judas is operating under God's providence, Judas is off the hook for how he betrays Jesus. We're not saying the chief priests and the scribes wouldn't need to repent of what they're doing right now. What we are saying is what Peter says in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, um, what you meant for evil this very day, uh, God meant for good. Uh, this plan which you carried out is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This crucifixion, this Jesus whom you crucified, you did this, but God meant this to be happening the whole time. That's the providence of God at work. Now, Peter, by the way, which should be a comfort to you, he doesn't see it at this moment in time. It only takes him like a month and a half before he, he gets the picture, okay? For you, it might take a lot longer. In fact, you might live your whole life not being able to resolve all of the moments which you've experienced about how does this fit into God's plan of providence. But the providence of God is best understood as we look back on our own lives and we look at the history of God's faithfulness towards us and we reflect and we think, maybe I can now see more clearly what God might have been up to in this situation. In fact, if you think about your own life and all the events which lead you to sit in the seat that you're sitting in now or married to the person you're married to now or living in the apartment that you're living in now or having the job that you have now or studying the degree that you're studying now, uh, you might say, well, 
what's happening is there's all these events which seemed unrelated and random to me at the time, which actually perfectly coalesce to my life as I currently know it. That's a little bit of what it's like to start to understand providence. Now, by the way, there's many of those kinds of events that happen in your life still, which you won't be able to figure out how it fits. But that's okay. It's not your job to figure out how it fits. All, all we're saying as Christians is we're saying, if we can't make it fit, that doesn't mean we're going to go to God and say, answer up. And here I think the model of Job is very helpful in his suffering, where he simply says, after God says, Job, I am here with you, listening to you. I'm in control of all the earth. Job simply says, I'm comforted. Job, by the way, never gets an answer to his question, why did any of these things happen? But Job does get the very presence of God to comfort him in his suffering. And that's what Jesus promises to us as well. He promises to us his peace, his mercy, the experience of joy and fullness and fulfillment in Christ, which is ours legitimately, even if suffering does not cease for us in this life. Even if everything that is hard and broken about the world that we experience is not finished in this life. God does promise to us comfort and peace in a way that we can know him now and know his comfort and peace now. And then he says, and in glory, all of these things that are wrong will be put right. All of these things that are broken will be made whole. And in glory, I'm confident we will be able to look back on our lives and see the manifest providence of God at work. So what do we conclude here with Luke 22 and Jesus submitting himself to God's providence? Well, I don't want us to be mistaken here that what Jesus is going through is like something that we might experience. No one in human history ever has or ever will go through what Jesus goes through. He goes through a suffering unequivocated with anything else. Because while someone might feasibly die a more painful human bodily death than Jesus did, crucifixion is painful, but it's not probably arguably the most painful way to die. What Jesus does in his death is he actually atones for the sins of the world, bears the wrath of God. There's an element to his death that no human will be able to repeat. And so it would be wrong for us to say, well, what is our moment of betrayal like what happened to Jesus? That, that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is what Jesus models for us is the most evil betrayal in the world, the most evil trial and crucifixion in the world where all of the wrath against sin was actually poured out. If he can entrust himself to the providence of God during that example, the chief example of all human history, um, our trials, our sufferings, our tribulations fall to a lesser degree and thus we are invited into something not equivalent with what our Savior did, but lesser than what our Savior did. We are invited to entrust ourselves to the providence of God to a much lesser extent than he had to. And he goes before us as our model. So that when you suffer, your suffering is joined with the fact that your Savior also suffered. Your brokenness that you experience in this world is joined with the fact that he suffered more gravely than you have suffered in his own brokenness and atoning for sin. So it gives us a kind of confidence, not that we are to repeat what he did, but we are to emulate and model the, the example that he sets before us. And also, the other piece of this is that this critical moment in redemptive history, the betrayal of Jesus, what it accomplishes and proves at the other side of the resurrection is something that just kind of gives this wave of confidence to the early church. This wave of confidence that 
yeah, actually, I can die, and death isn't the end. I can be killed in this life, and actually, that's not so bad. Uh, if, if I die, well, I get to go be with the Lord. That's what Paul says. Uh, to be absent with the body, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So what, what does his death and resurrection do for us? Well, it gives us every ounce of confidence that we would ever need to hold fast to the testimony of faith. It gives us every ounce of confidence we would need to go on being bold in our faith out in the workplace and out in our jobs and out in our relationships. Because the, at the very worst, what the world can do to us is kill us. And even then, well, Christ Jesus is in the business of resurrecting from the dead. That's his, that's his whole uh, claim to fame, is he resurrects from the grave and therefore, therefore, the world holds nothing in threat against us as Christians. So we ought to live in the confidence of those realities. Let's pray. Father, your wisdom in human history as it unfolds is just beyond our ability to grasp. And yet you have been pleased to give us small pictures to give to us comfort in our affliction. Lord, I pray that as we consider our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own brokenness that we experience in this world, the brokenness of others that we experience in this world, Lord, would you, by your grace, help us to see those events in light of, a, of the more sure reality of your reign upon the throne, your having put sin to death, and your working all things out for our good. Lord, what boldness that would give us as we walk tomorrow into our weeks, as we go from this moment now and we sing praises to your name. Lord, what a joy it would be for us to know that the sin and the affliction and the suffering and the pain which we currently endure is actually all part of your plan to make us holy, to, to sanctify us, and Lord, that it's actually for our good. What a, what a powerful idea that would be to help us to live and obey and worship you rightly. Lord, would you help us to connect that idea into our hearts. Would you help us to take that obscure concept and, and, and have that actually affect how we view our lives on the ground as we know it? That we would know your peace and your goodness. Lord, I pray that we all would know your peace and your goodness. Amen.